Nothing is more upsetting than when somebody hurts me or somebody I love and then they get away with it, right? Like I, I want, I want justice. I want, I want them to get everything that's coming to them. Um, now I, I want justice for you too. It's just that I want justice for me a little bit more. For example, if you were to leave your car at the parking lot at the mall and come back to the car and find out that it had been hit by a car next to you who, and they didn't leave their number, you'd be, you'd be like raging mad. You would flag down the, uh, the mall cops. Uh, you would ask them if they'd seen anything, if they didn't see anything. Uh, and then, then you'd go to maybe the mall office and find out if they had it on camera. And if you found out they didn't have it on camera, like you, you would be, you'd be fuming. And, and I would feel bad for you also. Like, oh, that's, that's really bad. I'm so sorry that happened. Right. Oh, right. That's, that's so sad. Um, but if it happened to me, bro. <laughs> I'd be praying against that dude. I'd be praying like like his his tire blows on the way home, the shrapnel from his tire chews up the inside of his car, uh, that he spins out. Nobody dies, of course, but maybe the thing catches on fire and his insurance won't cover it. Like that's <laughs> that's the kind of prayers I'd be praying. That that's that's what I would want. If if the mall cops didn't didn't see it, I'd want them fired. And then if I went into the office and they still didn't have it on tape, I'd I'd I'd, I'd try to get the the mall to pay for my my car is what I would do. Like I, I want justice when I have been offended, uh, and I and I want it. I want it like real bad. Here's a question: Does everybody deserve justice? Now, before you answer the question, you may have already answered it in your your your, your head. Let me ask it another way: Does everybody who does something bad deserve to be punished for doing something bad? Now, we're a little bit slower to answer this because we're now starting to see ourselves in the equation a little bit. I think my next question is, well, well, how bad? Well, the truth is you and I have both done some bad things, probably. I, I, I haven't, of course, but maybe somebody here has. I, I don't know who, not, not you either, of course, but I, I, I want justice. I just want justice for everybody else. When it comes to me, I think I, I want something different. Uh, when we contrast good and evil, right from wrong, uh, justice and grace, punishment and forgiveness, I, I think that our feelings are a little bit, uh, complex, uh, on, on this issue because we recognize that evil needs to be punished and, but we also know that we need to be forgiven and people People need to be forgiven, and but how much should they be forgiven, I think, is the thing that we struggle with. Uh, because the truth is, I want you to be punished if you've hurt me, uh, but I want to be forgiven if I've hurt you. And if you struggle with the idea that you've done some really bad things that you really want to be forgiven for, but you also know somewhere in the back of your head that you really don't deserve to be forgiven, then today's teaching is for you. If the idea that God would forgive really bad people for really bad things uh, is unsettling, then today's teaching is for you. You're also going to see that God doesn't forgive everybody. He doesn't. And if that terrifies you, then today's teaching is for you. Last week, we learned how uh, about Judas. 
uh, as, as a, a witness of the life of Jesus and the way that he interacted with Jesus and the things that we could learn uh, from, his, from his life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he's arrested. Uh, he's brought to the, to the high priest uh, where, they, where they beat him. Uh, they, they rip out his beard. Uh, they send him over to Herod, who beats him, sends him uh, over to Pilate, who beats him, and he's tortured all night long. On Friday morning, he's brought up before the crowds, and uh, Pontius Pilate, um, as his custom was every year during the Passover, was to release uh, a notorious criminal uh, to appease the masses. And so he contrasts the worst guy in prison, who he thought for sure uh, would not be favorable to the crowd, than Jesus, who his wife had told him, don't have anything to do with this man. So he brings out the worst person. Uh, just to just to stack the odds in Jesus's favor so that they would choose him to be let go. So that's what he would do. He'd bring two criminals and he would let them choose who he should free. And then he would, he would free them as a gesture of goodwill toward the Jewish people. And that would keep the Jews appeased. And that would make him, that'd keep his job security with the, with the Romans. Um, so he brings out Barabbas uh, and he brings out Jesus and uh, they say, release, G, release Barabbas. And then like he's perplexed by this because it's, it's the obvious wrong choice. And then he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, they say, crucify him. He washes his hands of this. Now, here's what you need to know. In the 24 hours leading, actually just like the 16 hours leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, he's been abandoned by everybody. All of his disciples have left him. The high priests have made accusations of blasphemy against him. The Romans have rejected Jesus. He is all alone. And uh, the good guy in today's story is not a disciple. The good guy in today's story uh, is actually a very, very, very bad, a very bad person. Um, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 23. Uh, that's where we're going to be at, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start reading in verse 32, and here's what it says. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, and this is Jesus. And here's what's really cool. Uh, you may have heard the story of the uh, um, the, the stations of the cross. Uh, some of those are in the Bible. Some some of those are not. But um, but Jesus is is led uh, from um, from the governor's office to to the place where he's going to be executed. And this verse tells us that he's led with two other people. Now they were carrying their cross beam. Jesus falls under the weight of it. You might already know the part about Simon the Cyrene. Uh, he's from North Africa. He's asked to help Jesus carry that crossbeam because he's been just beat to a bloody, bloody pulp. Uh, and, and so that guy's, he's famous. Uh, and the two criminals who are crucified with Jesus are also famous. But only Luke includes both of these outsiders. So as a North African, he wasn't from, from Jerusalem. So this outsider... This, it's kind of like if you're writing the narrative to a novel, this is a distracting character in the story because he doesn't show up before this. He doesn't show up after this. So it's like, why, why, do, you, why do you even insert him into this story? Because he's a distraction. And, and the same thing is true of the criminals. We have, we have no backstory on them. Luke is the only one that records this conversation that they have with each other and with Jesus in the middle of them. None of the other narratives of the life and times of Jesus include the conversation. Why, why would Luke, the only non-Jewish author in the Bible, the only outsider to Judaism and the expectation of a coming Messiah, be the one to include the only two outsiders uh, in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
and I, I think the answer is probably obvious as I've been leading you with my questions. Um, the only outsider who's an author in the New Testament is making sure that the rest of us who feel like outsiders know that we're included and we're a part of the story. That God intentionally made sure that two people that don't belong in the story are placed into the story so that those of us who also feel like we don't belong are, are, can be confident that there's a place for us also. So let's get back to the story. Jesus is led out to the place of execution with these two criminals. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed Jesus to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left. Jesus then says, uh, not to either one of them, but he actually prays to God the Father about the people who are torturing him and putting him to death. And his prayer is this. Jesus said, verse 34, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, which is another random distracting detail that's going to make sense in, in just a second. But I wonder if this is the first time that somebody being crucified has ever had something nice to say to those who were performing the execution, right? Like that's a weird thing for Jesus to do. I know that if I was going to be tortured to death and I knew I had done nothing wrong, I would, bro, <clears throat> I, I would lose my, my flipping mind. That's, that's what I would do. I would, I would be going off on everybody the whole time until I was hoarse, right? Like if I wasn't yelling at them, then I was proclaiming my innocence until my last breath or I was, you know, we see in movies that when people are dying, you know, they call out for their mom or whatever. Like I'd, that, like that's the kind of thing that you do. You, you don't think like objectively about the situation and consider the greatest need of those who are putting you to death unfairly. But that's what Jesus does. I, I wonder if that like caused anybody so there's, a, there's, there's only two people whose hearts are transformed on the day of Jesus's crucifixion. The first is one of these two criminals who are executed with Jesus, and the second is a Roman citizen, a, a centurion, the guy who is in charge of this execution. A Roman soldier actually commits to faith in Jesus on this day. Like The only two people who come to faith in Jesus on the day that he's dying for the sins of the world are the least likely people you would ever picked to be impacted by Jesus's death for the sins of the whole world. Like none of them are Jewish. None of them are his regular followers. These are two brand new people to the story of Jesus. They are inserted into the story at the very end. The only experience that we know that they have with Jesus is just his execution. And I'm wondering if, or at least for the centurion, him hearing Jesus pray to God for him to be forgiven for putting him to death. Like I, I wonder if that sat sideways in his head and in his heart and made him be a little bit more self-reflective and maybe even consider the possibility that everything that he had heard about this man might actually be true, but no, because nothing about this man is fitting anything else he's ever seen at, his, at a crucifixion. And maybe it started, I don't know, maybe he'd been a part of the whole process and saw that Jesus never defended himself or fought back against his persecutors. And none of this is like making any sense to him. And then he hears Jesus pray for God 
to forgive him for what he's doing to, to Jesus. And the, the two guys being crucified with Jesus, they, they hear this also. Um, but there is something more happening here than just the execution of Jesus. Isaiah uh, says in uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, uh, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought the troubles... Uh, his troubles were a punishment from God for the things that he had done. Most likely, that was the con that was the consensus of the crowd, but it was actually a punishment for our sins. Verse five. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole, and he was whipped so that we could be healed. And I and I told you there was that other random detail about the uh, the soldiers gambling for Jesus's Jesus's robe. That also comes from one of the Psalms in Psalm 22, which is referred to as the crucifixion Psalm, by the way. Uh, Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, 18. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This is written, by the way, 850 years before crucifixion was even invented. Verse 17, I can count all of my bones. The Bible said that he'd been whipped uh, by, by the, the, that cat of nine tails, which had the bone and the hooks and the glass and rocks in it, and his skin would have been flayed. Uh, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And then that random detail is included. Uh, it's also said that by Justin Martyr, uh, he references a commonly known letter that Pontius Pilate had written back to Rome about the crucifixion of Jesus. It was a report where he mentions uh, that the soldiers uh, gambled for Jesus's robe that had been given to him for the crucifixion. All right, now we're gonna hop back to this story. Jesus has prayed for everybody to be forgiven. Um, Jesus isn't being punished for his sins. As the Hebrew scripture said, he was punished for our sins. Uh, the, the, they gamble for his clothing in fulfillment of the prophecy that David had made all the way back in, in Psalm chapter 22. Um, and everybody on either side and the people in front, like everybody's heard Jesus made this prayer. Verse 35, Luke 23. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. So when, when, when they hear Jesus praying for God to forgive them, they mock him and they scoff at him. Huh. Who the heck does he think he is? Uh, here, here's, here's what they say. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. So let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So they say this in a way to discredit, to mock what they had just seen him do or heard him do, and that was to pray that God would forgive them. Say, all right, if you are the Messiah, then save yourself. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fashioned above him, above his head, that with, the, with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Now, a cool detail is that one of the other narratives of the life and times of Jesus, one of the other gospels, one of the other, uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but one of those other ones tell us that the high priest actually came to Jesus when they heard that Pontius Pilate had said that he wanted this sign fashioned and placed above his head that he's the king of the Jews. They said, no, we want the sign to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, it is as I have determined, right? Drops the mic and now they have to leave it. So the whole time they're mocking Jesus, they're reading a sign above his head that is saying something they are unwilling to admit. 
that he's the king of the Jews. And then we get to overhear this conversation between Jesus and these two criminals that only uh, Luke tells us about. Now remember, everything that Luke included in his narrative of the life of Jesus, he confirmed among multiple witnesses. And the book is written as a defense of the truthfulness of the life of Jesus. It's primarily a historical document from Luke's perspective, not a theological document. Um, which is the reason why he mentions the names of the people that he talks to so that his friend Theophilus can interview them also uh, if, if they would like. He gives the names of the characters uh, as, as well. Uh, but Luke 23, uh, 39, one of the criminals hanging beside Jesus scoffed also. So uh, the religious leaders start making fun of Jesus. Then closer, the, Jew, the, the, the Roman soldiers start making fun of Jesus. And then this guy's attention is turned away from his circumstances, and then he looks over at Jesus, and he begins to make fun of him also. Here's what he says. So you're the Messiah, are you? Like he hears them saying this. Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal is also experiencing the exact same situation, but is having a completely different response to the situation than the first criminal. And Jesus doesn't respond to that guy at all. This criminal on this side responds to him, looks over and says, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? And then he says something that the other guy was unwilling to admit. We deserve our punishment. We deserve this. This guy is like, let us down too. This guy says, we don't deserve that at all. We deserve everything that we're getting. Um, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he says to Jesus, who's in between him and the criminal that he's talking to, Jesus, please remember me once you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus finally responds, not to this guy, but to this guy and looks over and says, I promise you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now the word to describe these guys, criminals, that, that the Greek word that's used to describe, to describe who they were and what they did is the same word that Jesus used when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, you've got a Jewish man who's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, or maybe it's from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it's on that highway through the hills. It's really curvy. It was famous for banditos, right? Like, like highwaymen and, and robbers. And according to the story of the Good Samaritan, these highwaymen, these, these thieves, these robbers, these criminals jump out and they, they attack him. They, without knowing what he has to offer, they beat him within an inch of his life, leave him in a ditch to die and steal what little this man has. Now, the same word that's used to, that Jesus used to describe those guys as, as the highwaymen, the robbers, is the exact same word that Luke uses to describe these guys. So most likely these guys are not being executed because they broke in and stole somebody's TV. So when we say that they're criminals, that they're thieves, the thieves on the cross, it's not that just that they like shoplifted at Target. These guys were the kind of people that you knew deserved justice. These were bad people. And it's not like they got drunk and accidentally hurt somebody in a car accident. 
when they fell asleep or passed out or went across the lanes. These are people who intentionally prey upon the weak. They destroy people's lives for personal gain. They're horrible, they're horrible, horrible people. That's, that's who they are. These are people that deserve to die. They're definitely not good guys in the story. Uh, and that's the end of that conversation. There's three observations that I want to make, though, um, about this conversation that I think pertain to, to my life and to your life. And the first observation is this, that all of us want salvation without repentance. What I, what I really want is for God to fix my circumstances, not to change my heart, regarding the decisions that got me into these circumstances. If I want to be completely honest, that's what I want. I want God to forgive me. I don't want God to change me. That's what I want. I want God to get me off this cross, to get me out of this situation. But I don't necessarily want to have to say, but I deserve everything that I'm going through. This is my fault and I've committed. I I have contributed to the circumstances of the mess that I've found my life in. And I'm the one who keeps messing up my life. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to say that part. I just want to say this part. That's what I want to do. Now, first, I, I <laughs> when we get to this place where we where we tell God that if, if he does this for this or he does this, that for us, then we'll believe in him. But but if he doesn't do these things for us, then we're, we're not going to believe in him. I don't think God is, is threatened uh, by, by our threats. I wonder if we come across to God sometimes that if God doesn't fix my circumstances or get out of my trouble, then I'm going, not going to pray to him anymore. If I'm, I'm not going to go to church anymore if this, or, or maybe honestly, something bad has already happened to somebody else that we love and we prayed and asked God to keep them from going through that circumstance. And when God didn't do what we told him to do. We get mad at God and we've been mad at God ever since. Or we've stopped going to church ever since. And I don't know, maybe this is your first time back because it's a Palm Sunday. And, and I don't know, maybe you're feeling like that kind of emptiness on the inside where you feel like you need God again and you're coming back, but you're still kind of angry and you're holding God hostage to your pain. And because he didn't take away your pain or fix your circumstances, you're struggling with him. And I I think you need to know that if you walk away from God, that God isn't the one who's most hurt by that. I think it grieves his heart because he genuinely wants your best for you. But I think it's you that's hurt most by that decision. There's a story of a guy coming to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, seeing the man's heart, says, well, you you need to be perfect in your observance of the law, knowing that nobody is perfect. And then that's supposed to lead this guy to a place where he says, well, I'm not perfect, so I've sinned against God and against others. What do I need to do? And, And there was going to be a call to repentance. But what he says instead is, I've kept all the rules my whole life and I've never done anything wrong. Rather than arguing the point with Jesus, he said, there's something that you lack though. What you lack is generosity. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor because Jesus knew that the one thing this guy loved more than God was his money. And so Jesus went straight to the idol in his heart. 
And the Bible says that this man walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he was very rich. Now, if I had been Jesus, I would have said, no, wait a minute, why are you walking away? And I would have tried to reason with the guy. Uh, I would have said, well, maybe, hang on, maybe I didn't explain this right. Come, come back, come back, come back. Like, that's how I might have been tempted to respond. But what Jesus does is he just lets the guy walk away. Like, I, I think Romans chapter 1 infers or gives us the impression that God's going to place the idea of his existence in every person's heart at least once, even if they have no access to the scriptures or to somebody who knows and follows Jesus. Uh, the Bible says in Romans 1 that even like what you see in nature is enough to be convinced that there is a higher power so that you would reach out to him so that he would be found by you. So I think God does this for every person. He gives you a chance, but I don't think that you're guaranteed more than one chance. And if you want to walk away from God when you're given that chance, God's going to let you do that. And that's what this guy does. The second observation I make from this first part is that the first thief thought his greatest danger was the thing that he was going through right now. And truthfully, that's how I act. If I'm going through some type of difficult circumstances because of health or because of finances or because of relationships, the pressure that I feel in my life is not the brokenness that's in me. It's the brokenness that's all around me. And sometimes the brokenness around me is a distraction to the brokenness that God is trying to address on the inside of me. And I'm wondering if you're in that circumstance right now, where maybe the biggest prayers of your heart are God fix everything around me, but maybe the one thing God wants to fix most is the brokenness that is in you. So while God did not change the physical circumstances of either one of these criminals, one guy's forever, all of eternity, and whole heart and life was completely changed even if his circumstances weren't. And if you're going to go through this circumstance anyway, you can either go through this circumstance with a hard heart or a soft one, and I'm encouraging you to choose the soft one. The crazy thing about this situation, and this first criminal would have eventually found this out, but God himself in the flesh was right there with him in his greatest need. And he missed God because he was focused on the wrong thing. And I'd hate for that to happen to you. So the truth is, I want to be rescued from my problems, but that doesn't mean that I want God to change my heart before he changes my circumstances. But maybe that's what God's most interested in. The second thing I learned from this, this, this conversation between Jesus and the criminals is that God responds to repentant hearts more than he responds to desperate needs. That's what he responds to, is soft hearts. What if God doesn't see our temporary problems as our greatest threats? Well, if that's true, then God is definitely looking at my life differently than the way I'm looking at my life. But I don't think God is as concerned about cancer, about death, about the brokenness of your romantic relationships and the drama in your life as you and I are. I think we're far more concerned about these temporary problems. Like we know that they, like problems come and go, but what's permanent, God knows, is the condition of your heart. 
So he's always more concerned with things that are happening at a deeper level than the things that are happening at the surface level. But for us, the things that are happening up on the surface are the things that are grabbing our attention the most. But that's not to say that God is unsympathetic to the pain in our life or the struggles that we're going through. The gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the narratives of the life of Jesus, all four of them are filled with stories of Jesus being sympathetic. The Bible said that he sees the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed them. So God is, is interested in your physical health, in your financial struggles. God is also interested in your relational brokenness. Uh, and he wants you to call out to him. There's, there's a verse uh, that says, it's Philippians chapter four, verse six and seven. It says, don't worry about any of these things that are like, don't let these things fill your heart with anxiety and it's implied, keep you distracted from the greatest burdens or brokenness in your life, which is your heart. He says, instead, pray about all of these things. Tell God what you need, thanking God for what he's already done. Because when you can tell God what you need, from a position of gratitude, from what he's already done, you're able to move yourself from this side of Jesus to this side of the Jesus. When you say, I don't deserve or I don't, you don't have to do this for me, but I'm asking you to do this for me. That's what moves the heart of God. It says that when you pray this way, you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Um, so while he didn't demand it, um, the guy on this side simply asked Jesus to remember him on the other side of death, and Jesus did much more than that for him. He said that he'd be with him on the other side. Why did Jesus give this guy more than what he'd asked for? Because Jesus knew his heart, and he knows yours. He knows why you're a part of this service today. Jesus knows the brokenness that is in your life and the pain that you're experiencing and the urgent things in your life that feel like the most threatening things uh, to your life. He knows what you need, and he is willing to respond. So ask. Ask for God's help. I think that if you ask for God's help, you'll get a third thing that I see in this passage of Scripture and this conversation, and that's this. You'll find that God's grace is greater than you thought it was going to be. Uh, did this man over here go into paradise with Jesus? Uh, yes, he did. What good did he do, though, on this side of eternity to earn that? None. Like, that's, that's the crazy thing about this story being included. Now, John is the other narrative of the life and times of Jesus that includes the story of the criminals. But what's crazy is that as Jesus is dying for the sins of the whole world, the last person on this side of Jesus's death to have his heart transformed by faith is the one guy whose faith would never result in any tangible benefit for the kingdom of God on this side of death. Like this guy had absolutely nothing to offer. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't give offering. He couldn't do good deeds. He could, like, this dude is dying. There is no benefit to Jesus at all in saving this guy from his sins and making sure he got to go to heaven when he died. Like, this does not benefit at all, uh, benefit God at all, which only, I, I think, highlights the 
crazy generosity of the grace of God. That God's grace isn't self-serving from his point of view. God's grace is completely 100% for your benefit, which means that you don't have to do anything to earn getting back on the right path again. I know that when we go through a 12-step program, one of those steps is to make amends, to go back to the people that we've hurt, the people that we've created relational debt with, people that we have taken from and we've left a hole in their heart because of what we took. And then the idea is that we have to go back and we have to fill that hole again, uh, that we've got to repair the damage that we've done so that the two of us can be made whole again. And we, since that is the way that it works relationally, we transpose that reality on our relationship with God and feel like, like, like you, you might be in a really bad way. Like there, there might be things in your heart that truly weighing heavy on you that you know you need to come to God with, but you feel like you're not, you, you're not, you're not ready. Why? Because you've got to change first. And the story of the thief on the, on the right, or the left, like we don't know which side they were. The thief on this side is evidence to you that you don't have to change first. Like there's no getting ready that you have to do in order to come back to God. You just have to change your heart about where you're at and about what God owes you. That's it. God, you don't owe me anything. And I'm just asking you to take my heart, my life, and change it however you want. That's it. Now, here's what I know. Because of the prayer that this thief made, if for some reason, some crazy extenuating circumstance, he was let down off that cross and was given another month to live, do you think his life would have been lived differently? Uh, absolutely. Like if both of these guys would have been set free and given another year of their life, the direction of their lives would have gone in completely opposite places. And we know this because of the way this guy's heart was changed, right? So when a person's life is changed because of their relationship with God, it's changed because the relationship with God has become solid, not so that the relationship with God becomes solid. My life is changed not so that God will love me, but I want my life to change because I'm confident he already does. Like I want to live a better life, not so that I can go to heaven, but because I already know God has given me something I don't deserve, this gratitude that I feel in my heart becomes a motivation for the change that you begin to see uh, in, in my life. And one of the last things that I want to share with you is this, that the suffering of the cross shows the depth of God's love, but it's the inclusion of this scumbag, this guy who hurt innocent people and prayed on the weak. Like the... the like, if this guy had been one of the people that had hurt your family and you heard Jesus say to this guy, he would be in paradise. Oh my gosh. But the extravagance of God's inclusion of this guy in his plan to redeem the world shows the scope of God's love. 
which definitely includes you also. The thief had nothing to offer but repentance and got nothing less than paradise. I think that's beautiful. You can't earn it. It's simply granted when you, from the sincerity of your heart, are broken over the rottenness of the sin that is in your own heart. And if that's you, then you can call on Jesus to forgive and save you, just like he did, and Jesus will. It's been said that the thieves are a contrast between every person who's ever presented with the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is willing to pay off your debt before a holy and righteous God for your disobedience towards him and your selfishness towards others. There are those who are presented with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that hear what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that if anybody wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up a cross, and follow me. And we sitting on this side just don't know if that's what we want. I, I definitely want the forgiveness piece. I definitely want the heaven piece if that exists, right? But the idea that I would deny my selfish nature and I would rearrange my life around the person of Jesus, that I would be willing to slate, pick up a cross to, it's a symbol of sacrifice, of death. Like put to death the selfish dreams I have and be willing to let God redirect my entire life and then follow him. Like that actually is what it takes to be saved. Like that's faith. Like faith is like, it's it's different than just like, Satan believes Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So you believe in God, great, Peter said. Even the demons believe, but tremble. What they don't have is the kind of saving faith that says, God, I trust you so much. I give you all of me. And when presented with the opportunity, I wonder how many of us, honestly, who are part of this service right now would be on this side of Jesus, truthfully, right? Versus how many of us would be on this side and say, God, I don't, I don't deserve even everything that I already have. And truthfully, whatever I get is what I get. But 100% of me now belongs to you for the rest of 100% of me, right? Even if that was on your deathbed, that would be enough. But you're not on your deathbed. You're right here, right now. And if you are convinced by God's Holy Spirit that you have sinned against God and others, and you want to be reconciled to God, then you're going to have to have, to have the attitude of this guy. Call on Jesus. God, forgive me. Rescue me from my sin. I am 100% yours. Make that your prayer. There's a verse that says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, it says, my old self now has been crucified with Jesus so that now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let that verse be the prayer and mantra of your life moving forward. And if you've already come to that place, and have deep concerns, worries, anxieties, or struggles, then I'm giving you the opportunity to lay those at the feet of Jesus also. And whether he gets you off this cross or not, I hope that your prayer is, God, not my will be done, but yours. Let's pray. 
God, I love you with all of my heart. And I'm thankful for this story included in the book of Luke. I'm, I'm thankful uh, that you included a guy who we all admit, even this guy admitted, he didn't deserve anything from you. God, sometimes I feel like we feel that the good things that we've done should earn us some kind of special credit as though it undoes, undoes all of the bad things we've already done. God, the truth is no amount of good will ever make us innocent of ever having done bad. And it's the bad things that we're accountable for. So God, I'm thankful that you showed up in the human story and offered your life as a sacrifice for my sins, as Isaiah said you would do. And while I don't even understand all of that, I know the scripture says that the Father placed our sins on your shoulders. And that was the sin that you paid for. So I just want to say thank you. And that's your prayer. Maybe your prayer is, Jesus, I would never have asked you to die for my sins, but since you volunteered, I'd be crazy to ignore that. Jesus, forgive me for sinning against you also. Can you make that your prayer? God, I'm not demanding anything from you like the first criminal, but like the second criminal, I'm just asking you to take whatever I have left. God, you've got my heart, you've got my life, you've got my hopes, you've got my dreams. God, I am not keeping anything. 100% of me is available to you. Can you make that your prayer? God, save me from my sin. Jesus, thank you for giving me your death. Thank you for raising from the dead with new life to give me a new life also. That's what I'm asking for right now. Make that your prayer. If you're already a devoted follower of Jesus, but you've got struggles, lay them at the feet of Jesus, not with demands. God, these are the things that I'm asking you to help me with. But truthfully, God, what I want more than what I want is what you want. Pray that, God, this is my honest prayer. And if it's not, I'm going to keep praying it until it is. But help me to want what you want more than what I want. But if we have not, because we ask not, then I'm asking, here it is. Here's my struggle. Do with it, God, whatever you want. I love you and will follow you no matter what happens. God, I pray, pray that the prayers that we're making today please you and fill your heart with happiness. And I'm asking in response for you to give us peace in our circumstances. This is our prayer we ask in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.